Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Sort of landscape that it begs a response. And people have been responding to it forever in different ways. Wordsworth responded to it in terms of his poetry, but 5,000 years ago, the Neolithic farmers responded in their own way. In this week's podcast, we're climbing perilously steep cliffs to discover a beautiful marbled green stone touched by spirits departing the earth and used to make totemic axe heads. A landscape in which our Neolithic ancestors followed the rising smoke of huge funeral pyres and seemed to have invented for themselves nothing less than the concept of heaven itself. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Your journey in the last podcast took us to the strange lunar-like landscape of Grimes Graves in Norfolk. Where are we this week? We're walking in scenery of astonishing beauty to a place that always inspires and never fails to lift me whenever I visit. A huge glacial valley, Great Langdale, in Cumbria's Lake District. During the Neolithic period, the time of the first farmers, 5,000 years ago, people were making use of Great Langdale. They were certainly using, at certain times of the year, the grassland there, the slopes of the valley, for their cattle and their, their herds and flocks generally. But significantly, Great Langdale was a, a place to, to which people were drawn in search of a special kind of stone for making axe heads. Archaeologists uh, are, are familiar with the the iconic uh, Langdale axe. These are a, a form of polished stone axe head, uh, and they were clearly desirable, not just in the Lake District, but all over Britain. Something like one quarter of all the Neolithic polished axes found anywhere in the British Isles were made from stone that was very deliberately sourced and located in Great Langdale. 
if you're in the Valley of Great Langdale and you look up against the sky where the jagged peaks are, uh, two of the peaks are known as uh, Pico Stickle and Harrison Stickle. And all of the Langdale axes found all over Britain were made from rock that was collected from high up on those peaks. So people, people were on some kind of a pilgrimage to that location in Cumbria to get their hands on the raw material from which they could make axes. The stone in question, uh, well, geologists call it tuff, that's T-U-F-F, uh, or also greenstone, which is a more poetic and, and well, basically a more descriptive name for it. Uh, the stone is, has many colours, but it's certainly quite common to find uh, stone from Great Langdale that has a kind of a jadeite green colour. The axes that are made, the axes that have been found, are heart-stopping jaw-droppingly beautiful. You know, you, you think of, a, of an axe head, something made out of steel, as just being a utilitarian object, you know, just something for cutting down trees or whatever. But the Langdale axes are just beautiful. Uh, the, the, the stone men who were making the axes were deliberately looking for pieces of green stone that were uh, marbled with veins of colour. So in addition to the deep green or the, or the dark greyish blue, Maybe there's lines of white that, that that are folded through it, and when these stones are polished up and finished, they have this unique form. You you could only ever you couldn't replicate one one Langdale axe that you found because it it's dependent upon a unique fingerprint. It's a bit like uh, you know the 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 Japanese samurai swords, and and specialists collectors will talk about the unique. A wave form pattern that runs down the blade. It's called the hamon, and it's a it's a result of the of the ten thousand times that the that the metal is is folded and beaten into one piece again, and folded and beaten and ten thousand times, and it ends up with a unique wave, the hamon. Well, in, in a in a different way, but something that's somehow analogous, because they were taking advantage of these natural uh, irregularities in the stone each. Langdale axe tends to be a unique object. They're big as well. I mean, they're, they're heavy. You'd need two hands to hold them. They can be like a foot, a foot long. They're big. When it comes to the business of using axes, bizarrely, fascinatingly, the Langdale axes wouldn't really be your first choice if you were going to try and cut down a tree. Because those uh, irregularities... That, that give them their unique patterning. They're also um, weaknesses, they're fault lines, okay? And the reality is that if you were to swing one put, one, put one in a shaft and swing it against the trunk of a tree, it would likely break, possibly on the first impact, down this fault line. So you wouldn't use a Langdale axe necessarily for the business of cutting down trees. So you think, well, what are they for? If, if, if given that a, a quarter of all the axes found anywhere in Britain are made from these from this stone, well, one interpretation is that it was the location, it was where the stone had come from that invested it with a kind of significance. Obviously, the, the physical beauty. So people may have been ending up with with axes that were uh, heirlooms, priceless, like a Viking sword that would have its own name. You know, a name you know, orc killer or whatever. <laughs> Each of these Langdale axes might have had a story and it might have been, they might have been passed down through families as, as symbolic items. 
but they mattered. But you have to start asking yourself, what is it about these? What is it about these axes? Why are they so desirable? And to, and to answer that question, you have to think about the, the the Neolithic time, which is the context within which these axes were being made. And the, the the Neolithic was a time of change. Obviously, you know, we've discussed it before. It was a it was the time when people were adapting to the reality of being farmers rather than hunters. So they were they were coming up with all sorts of different ways in which they were considering the landscape. Uh, the stars and the planets in the sky. They were th- asking big questions, thinking big thoughts. They were coming to terms with uh, with having permanent addresses, fixed places in the landscape. All sorts of things are going on. In the early part of the Neolithic, when it came to treating the dead, uh, those farmers, uh, to begin with, were in the habit of perhaps briefly burying a dead body and then going back and exhuming it after a period of weeks or months when the natural processes of decomposition had dealt with, you know, the flesh and the and the organs and whatever, and you were mostly left with bones. Or they would simply have laid the, the bodies out in an exposed location so that the animals, birds and foxes and the rest would have come and picked away the flesh. However they were doing it, you end up with, with a pile of bones that you have to, because they'd be scattered around the field a bit, but you have to gather them together and then they would be taken and put inside one of these tombs, these these great stone tombs that were being built. And we've talked about this before, uh, but as the Neolithic progressed, uh, less of that was happening and it became more the fashion, if that's the right word, to cremate the dead bodies. And and that's a, that's a challenging uh, uh, operation, you know, to burn a, a human body it's a big thing. It's a big object, and you need a great deal of heat sustained over really a twenty-four hour period before you can make a body go away. It's not easy. So they must have developed a technique whereby they were building pyres of of, of timber, putting the body in the middle of it, maybe packed around with dry grass and the rest, a large amount of material, and then it has to burn hot for a a good day to to take away the body, and then you're left with just ash and and broken shattered fragments of bone and these were either collected sometimes in clay pots like an urn like like we would do with a cremated loved one or they may have just buried the the ash and, and the fragments but it's a it's a different way of thinking about the dead you know rather than rather than keeping them uh, maybe in a in a tomb cremation's different if you imagine the scene there's a great fire burning and a loved relative is there being transformed literally into into smoke and ash that rises up into the sky. If you're observing that, it might occur to you that maybe some essential uh, element of that ancestor is going up into the sky as well. And if you ask any child where they think heaven is, they're liable to point up We've, we sort of learn from childhood, infancy. If we hear about heaven at all, it's kind of up there. And, and whether, you, whether you have a, a religious belief or not, we all know about heaven because we've heard about it as a concept. And we also, whether you believe in a soul or not, we, every one of us understands the concept. Well, those concepts had to be conjured into being in the first place. It had to occur to somebody that maybe as we're cremating dad, dad's body, that something of him has gone up into the sky and never coming back. And so perhaps it was during the Neolithic that people actually 
conceived of the notion of heaven and the soul for the first time. Now, let's take Great Langdale. Let's say people are in the habit of cremating the dead there and they watch the smoke and the ash rise. And the last of the land, the last of the earthly domain that the, that the, the spirit of the, or the soul touches before it disappears off into heaven is the highest jagged outline of the highest mountains. So archaeologists have allowed themselves to uh, suppose that perhaps people were thinking if we can go up into the highest places in the valley and collect stone from there and from that stone make something beautiful that we can keep, we will be retaining forever some infinitesimal sense of that departed loved one. And that idea, that clever, uh, complicated spiritual thought may have spread around the greater Britain like smoke until, until eventually people in the farthest flung places had heard about this idea and thought, well, maybe we should get Langdale axes of our own because there's something, there's a, there's a magic here, there's something, there's, that's a powerful idea. It's just one, it's just one idea, it's just one uh, interpretation, but the, the value that was clearly placed on the Langdale axes, it begs questions and answers. How difficult would it have been for them to get this precious green stone? We know exactly where they were collecting stone. It's like a quarry site, high up. And it's in a dangerous location. I mean, in, the, in modern times, people have been hurt or even killed in that location, in a fall. And, and it, may have, it may well have been part of a kind of a rite of passage for youngsters maybe coming, making the transition from childhood to adulthood. Part of it may have been to, to go up into the high places, kind of commune with where the spirits maybe hang about, like caught like cobwebs on a, on, a, on, a, on a nail. They're just lingering there, perhaps. And people, they might have been in the habit of, of going up to these dangerous, because it was heroic, to go up into the dangerous place and come back maybe with a, with a piece of uh, green stone from which an axe could be made. What's the area the valley sits in like? When you go to Great Langdale, one of the ways in, if you like, is, is via a village uh, called Chapel Style. Tiny little, a dot on the map, Chapel Style. Uh, it's northwest of, of Ambleside. And when you go there, there are uh, what, they, what geologists call glacial erratics, which is a fancy way of describing very large boulders that, that have been there since the Ice Age. The, 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 these big boulders were in amongst the ice, in amongst the glacier, and then when eventually the glacier melted, these great massive house-sized boulders were left behind. And they've, they've been there ever since. And when you, it's funny when you approach them from a distance, they're, they're kind of pale, they're, they're made of the same stuff as the, uh, the Langdale axes. It's more of this uh, uh, volcanic greenstone. And when you approach them from a distance, they're so big and so odd that some, they look like maybe a couple of elephants <laughs> at loose in, against, the, against the green. Uh, so they're quite a sight, and then when you come alongside these, the, the, the big one, which is called Copt Howe, it's, it's the size of a house. And for decades, rock climbers have practised by bouldering. They climb on it. And so it's been, a, it's been a destination in the modern era for that reason alone. And this century, and last century, people noticed that in a certain light you could see artworks etched, pecked into the east face of 
this great boulder. They're very hard to see. You're best going maybe early in the morning when, this, when the sun is low in the sky and it casts shadows. And, and the, the, it's sometimes easiest to see these designs in the low light. And it's uh, cup and ring marks, which is to say little um, you know, circular dish depressions that have been picked into the stone with another stone, sometimes with multiple circles around them. But they're very shallow now. They're very worn. There's a couple of things that look like chevrons, kind of like irregular rectangle shapes, filled in with lots of dots. They're, they look, to be quite honest with you, they look like the sort of doodles that people make on a pad of paper when they're, make, when they're on a phone call. They have that kind of just abstracty look about them. Uh, but, of course, we've got no way. We've got no way of interpreting it. And as with, you know, other examples of Stone Age rock art... It could be a language. It could be communicating more than just an image. It may well, and in all likelihood, did mean something. Some people have suggested that the circular, the concentric circles radiating out like the ripples from a dropped pebble into, into a puddle of water are, are similar to visions that people report when they take hallucinogenic substances. There's quite, people quite often talk about going down a tunnel of, of colour and light that, that, that's, that can be a, a psychological effect of taking certain hallucinogenic drugs. And, and we know that people have been taking hallucinogens forever. Other people have suggested that, that say, the chevron and, and other shapes, it might actually be a map. It might, because it's, it's, it's in the low ground before you start on the climb up into, into, the, into the mountains. And people have suggested that maybe new arrivals into, into the valley would come, see on the stone some kind of instructions. It might actually have information, data of some kind, but we can't know. But just allowing inside your head for the possibility of other words, other languages, other means of communicating, it's eye-opening, mind-expanding in the, in the form of a hallucinogenic drug because obviously the Lake District is in Cumbria. And years ago in Cumbria, I was told about there are many old ways of counting all over the north of England, actually, and the relics left behind from forgotten languages, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic languages, pre-Roman, very, very old languages. And I was, I was taught that Yantan, Edra Tedra Pip, Odra Bodra, Edra Dedra Dick is one to ten in this old language. And it, it survived into the, into the modern era largely because of people like shepherds counting, counting stock. And coming across little, they're like little. It's like it's like finding a truffle, a little pungent treasure found in left behind and buried, and it's it's evocative and redolent. And you think, what's the rest of this language? What what were the other ways of communicating that were wrapped around this counting that we don't know? Well, so likewise, when you go to Cop Town, you see these artworks etched in, and we just dismiss them as doodles. But that's because we can't we can't read that language. We don't know. And maybe they are just abstract forms, we can't say, but there's always a possibility that they are, if you've, if you've, if you've been educated in that language, it would mean something. During the Neolithic, why Langdale matters, why it's one of those places that, that I feel is part of the story of the British Isles, uh, it's, it's a reminder that at different times for our ancestors, different places mattered. Uh, you know, we talked before about the Ness of Brodgar being a centre of gravity. Uh, up 
up in Orkney, that people were drawn there at a time when that place was important. Well, likewise, during the Neolithic, Great Langdale may have been one of those places. It's overlooked now, but it may have been of great significance then. And I am I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that, that we used to know a different landscape. I've spent quite a lot of time in Australia, and a lot of people will have heard of the concept of the song lines. Uh, you know, Bruce Chatwin wrote a beautiful book about the song lines, for example. And it, it's the idea... It's bound up with the, with the Aboriginal, the Indigenous people's uh, belief in the time before time began. They call it vaguely, almost incomprehensibly, the dreaming. And I've, had, I've spent enough time with, uh, with Indigenous folk all over Australia, and, and I've, had them, I've had various of them explain the dreaming to me. And it's, the explanation, it's like, it stays with you f- until they stop talking. And then it's, all, it's almost, funnily enough, it's almost like when you're waking up from a dream and for a few seconds you've got it, and then it just gets away from you. Well, explanations of the dreaming are a bit like that. But it, basically what it boils down to is that there's this understanding of a time before time began, when the, when the world was being shaped by the creatures that are the ancestors of everything that's alive now. So there's like a, there's like a kangaroo spirit and a crocodile spirit that, that in time gave birth to the kangaroos and the crocodiles. So, so, so there's these mystical creatures, and these creatures moved about the landscape and they shaped it. And So they, they made the rivers and the mountains and the lakes and the valleys. And, and in amongst the landscape, they created sacred special places, like Uluru, Ayers Rock, in the middle of Australia, is one of those special places. And they're all connected up by the song lines there's a, there's a kind of a song map that connects all these places together. And in the Aboriginal tradition, if you know the words of the song and the music, you can sing it to yourself and be guided from place to place without ever getting lost in the trackless wilderness of the outback. You're never lost because if you remember the way that the places link up in the song lines, you can get from place to place. And I remember... I remember one time we were we went out to see a place called Montgomery Reef, which is a reef out in the ocean uh, 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 by Kimberley in North uh, West Australia, and it, it's an amazing natural feature. The tide, when the tide drops as it does twice a day, this reef appears out of the water, and it happens so fast that the water is like cascading down like waterfalls off the reef. It's very beautiful, and the reef is about 150 square miles. It's vast. And we were watching it and the, we were in a little boat and we misjudged it and the water went out, it drained out from underneath us and we were kind of, we were clunk <laughs> and we were on the reef and there was nothing to do but wait for six or seven hours till the water came back. So lying in the dark, wondering if crocodiles would come and looking up at the stars and one of the, one of the Aboriginal men on the boat was a local guy that I've met a couple of times, he's called Donnie Wallagudja and I took the opportunity to ask him about the dreaming uh, as I had asked other people. And I said to him, is the dreaming only for you guys? Is it just an Australian Aboriginal thing? And he said, he said no, no, he said, it's everyone. He said, he said, everyone was dreamt into existence by the world. We're all a product of the dreaming. So he said, you're part of the dreaming too. And I was thrilled. I was thrilled by this idea that I was part of the dreaming as well. And it, it always ranks as one of the best things anyone has ever said to me. But ever since I've wondered if the song lines, as it were, once upon a time didn't just finish in Australia, if they were everywhere, 
And I've wondered if Somewhere Lost is the songline that would connect Great Langdale maybe to the Nessa Brodger. The words and the, and the music of which we have lost. But I've wondered if there, once upon a time these places were connected up in the same way. And it, when you go to somewhere like Langdale, because it's such a, a wondrous, beautiful, natural landscape of, of a glacial, sort of U-shaped valley with these jagged tops and these great boulders like, like Copt Howe, these erratics, if you were a Neolithic farmer and you were trying to understand how it had all come to be, you know, if you were asking yourself the questions, what's it all about, why am I here? That landscape may have looked like somewhere that wasn't just an actual accident, but had been made in the same way that the Aboriginal people in Australia think that the landscape was actually deliberately sculpted during the dreaming. You could look at it and think, these things have been put here by giant hands. These are like giant Lego blocks left over. You could, get a, you could look at that landscape and think, There's, this was made. This is a, this is a made landscape. And you, and you get, there are just certain places. You know, Great Langdale for me is in the story of the British Isles because it's a reminder of a time when we, when we perhaps tried to understand the landscape differently. And there was another way of thinking your way through it. And, and although it's completely antiquated and lost in time as far as we're concerned, once upon a time it mattered. And because it mattered at that time to those people for as long as it did, it, it continues to matter. And sometimes I think we owe it to our concept of the ancestors to try and try and allow for the way in which they might have tried to make sense of the world. And isn't it extraordinary to think that we can walk around Britain and find these marks which are an, an, a language we've forgotten? We don't know what it means, but it's there. It's there for us to walk past and touch. Yes, I, I, often, I, often, I often wonder at what point we did forget... You take somewhere like Stonehenge. Everyone's heard of Stonehenge. You can picture it in your mind's eye quite easily. Great circle of sarsen stones. Now, the people that built it, they knew what they meant by it. And people visiting it or people living around it would have known what Stonehenge was, what it was called, what it was for, how it worked. And, and it was in use for centuries. Used changing probably and developing as it went along, but it was being used, and and so the understanding of Stonehenge would have gone down from generation to generation, and then then there would have come a day when, for whatever reason, people said we don't need that anymore. We're finished with Stonehenge, but they would still have known what it was in the same way that we know what uh, York Minster is, even if we don't go there to worship, we know what York Minster is. And I wonder, at what point, what generation after Stonehenge stopped being used, did there come a generation who simply didn't know what it was? When did the mystery come? We don't know what Stonehenge was for. Not really. We've, lots of people have put interpretations on it, some of which might be right, many of which might be wrong, but it's certainly incomplete. And I've, I've wondered, why did we forget that? 
Will there come a day when people are walking through the landscape of York and they'll look up at York Minster and say to someone standing beside them, what is that? And have the answer come back, nobody knows. <laughs> Seems inconceivable. When does, the no when does the knowledge... So 5,000 years ago, people understood something about Great Langdale and they had, they had drawn things on the rocks and they, and they did certain things. They made stone axes laboriously and carefully. So there was a long time, hundreds of years, when everybody knew what it was about. Why, why you wanted one? Why do you want one of these? Well, I'll tell you. And you think, well, at what point after people stopped making Langdale axes did they forget? That fascinates me too. When does knowledge get away from us? And why? But this is a way of understanding the world. You could, I wouldn't call it a religion or a science because those are modern words really and they don't. it's dangerous to try and sort of reverse engineer our way of thinking onto something that's 5,000 years old. But, but nonetheless, there was a, it all, all of that way of in, under, that the Neolithic people understood that landscape. It was all of a piece. It fitted together and the axes were part of it. And now we don't know. Do you think we'll ever understand what these symbols mean? I mean, obviously, you've got the Rosetta Stone was the key to understanding the, the hieroglyphs in Egypt. You know, for, for centuries, people had seen the hieroglyphs and they hadn't known what they meant. They'd understand, they knew that they were looking at some sort of a language, some sort of alphabet, but they couldn't work it out. But then classically, during Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, the Rosetta Stone was found and it had on it this, uh, a, a statement in hieroglyphs that was also translated into ancient Greek. And so you were able to, it was like having a primer. Suddenly they were able to read, oh, if it's the same thing written twice, once in hieroglyphs and once in another language, and we know the one, so that's that. And that cracked the code. That cracked the code of, of Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, but for want of a discovery like that, we're not going to get back to understanding what, the, what they were communicating one to another, if they were. We don't even know for certain. There's a, there's a, there's a suggestion that perhaps the art communicated something above and beyond just its pictorial representation. We don't know. I mean, maybe it is just abstract art. That's how we see it. Maybe that's how the farmers saw it 5,000 years ago. But for want of a Rosetta Stone, I don't see how we could get back to reading Neolithic. What does this glimpse of Neolithic Langdale tell us about how they thought? There are so many... Uh, concepts that we're just able to take for granted because we, we grow up and we're educated we, we, we go to school we read books we learn things and, and, you, and so you come you run across a concept like heaven and you take it for granted or, or even a concept like the future the future is an interesting thought to have you know in other places that will come to in the story of the of the British Isles you know the idea of the future is an explanation for sacrifice. You know, there are lots of places where we find things that the, that the ancestors put away for some reason. They, they put swords or jewelry into lakes, or they put things down in deep holes under the ground, like at Grimes Graves, where the, where the people were mining for flint. And when, when, they, when they thought they had taken enough, they put things back down, tools, cooked food, human remains. And it, it would appear that there comes to someone at some point the idea that if we make sacrifices now, if we give up 
now something that is valuable and useful. The future, when it comes, will be kind to us. You know, rather than just waiting to see what the future will be like when it comes, maybe if we sacrifice certain things like food, like one another, like a sword that you need to protect your family, the future when it comes will be kind to me. But it's, it's fascinating to imagine that people had to come up with that. We, we're aware of the idea of, like, you, you, make, you make sacrifices for your children every day. You know, you work. You, you do tasks every day that you, maybe you'd rather be doing something else. But you do it because you think, I'm, I'm doing, and my, my children will benefit from this in the longer term. You're, you're investing, you're sacrificing and investing in the future. And that's, that's something that comes with the farmers. You know, the hunters would just go out every day and gather and hunt. But when it comes to the farmers, the farmers are thinking, well, I might want to eat, I might want to make these seeds into flour now and make bread and eat it. But I'll keep it back because I can plant it in the spring and then my family will have something to eat in the autumn. It's a different idea of, of, of being aware that if you want the future to be good, you have to do good things now. And we, we're, you're grasping at the outside edges of these ideas developing in a place like Langdale 5,000 years ago. It's not the beginning necessarily, but it's a snapshot o- 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 that you can look at and you can, you can be, perhaps begin to see the way that, that the human thought process was evolving. And it, and it was evolving in, in similar ways in other parts of the world at the same time. You know, once people were farming, living in these, living in settlements, pooling their resources, cooperating with one another, it, it begins to change. People were domesticated, their minds were domesticated just as they domesticated the plants and the animals. They were domesticating themselves at the same time. And, you, and you're just glimpsing a few frames of that happening at a place like Langdale because of the axes. What's it like to hold one of these totemic greenstone axes? There is a wonder in the in the Langdale axes because of the heft of them. You know, if you were to have your eyes closed and you hold out your hands and someone puts a, a, one of these axes in your hand, you know, you it's like you're handed a cannonball. You know, it's a, it's a heavy. It, it has a presence. You know, you're you're aware of being in the presence of the axe. You know, if you're lucky enough to be ever given the opportunity to hold one. So, so you can see, even as a 21st century person, when you hold it, and, and if you look at it, and you see the veining and, the, and, the, and the, the way in which some craftsman has taken advantage of the natural veins of different coloured rock to create something of breathtaking beauty, even without knowing all the things we don't know, you can still see why someone would treasure one. When you're confronted with one of these things that's the product of hundreds of hours by someone very skillful, <gasps> you behave respectfully in its presence, as though it were, as though it had a personality. And it's extraordinary that they got all around the country. The trade, yes, and which obviously that asks even more questions because uh, implicit in the idea that a Langdale Axe has ended up, you know, in Lincolnshire or from from the Lake District, what went in the other direction? Because you think, well, presumably there was an exchange here. 
I'll give you my, I'll give you this axe. What will you give me? So you see as well uh, the, the beginnings of people trading. And, and, and people have got, for the first time with the farmers, they've got surplus. And if there was a good harvest, you maybe end up with a lot more food than you need. And not only have you got enough seed for next year's uh, spring, you've got, you've got enough that you can say, right, we can use some of the bags of this seed and we can, well, we can get ourselves a Langdale axe. With, with farming, you start to unpack a whole world of, of potential and it's things that you recognise. You know, you're, you begin to see the way that people's minds are working 5,000 years ago. And although you can't have complete understanding, you can catch glimpses of what is obviously going on. So it speaks of people knowing where other people are. You know, you, you can't trade with the people in Lincolnshire unless you, you've been there. Or people from Lincolnshire have been to Great Langdale. There has to have been this cross-pollination. What's the valley at Great Langdale like? On the one hand, you've got the very soft lowlands. You know, you've got the green, the grass, and the hedgerows and whatever, and the, and the fields. But then it, the slopes rise, and then against the skyline, maybe silhouetted against the against the, the light of day, are these jagged, shattered peaks. You know, so you've got like Harrison Stickle and Pike Stickle and the rest. You know, they're these frost shattered peaks, like the you know, like this, like the scales on the back of a you know, a dinosaur's back, right high up against the sky. It's a very dramatic landscape, and, and hence why people like Wordsworth and the rest were moved to go there and write some of their poetry, because it's the sort of landscape that it begs a response. And people have been responding to it forever in different ways. Wordsworth responded to it in terms of his poetry, but 5,000 years ago, the Neolithic farmers responded in their own way by making the axes engraving some of the big boulders with perhaps instructions to one another. You know, they were responding. That landscape asked a question and that 5,000 years ago was their best attempt at an answer. Stone-lined passageways aligned east to west skulls, long bones and other human remains. A powerful place that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up where our ancestors walked with the spirits of their dead. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To ensure you get each new episode of this podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe. You can follow in my footsteps as my journey unfolds across these aisles of ours by going to my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter, and seeing the places I've chosen. I'd also love to know about the history that inspires you. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. The music is by Malcolm Goldie. Additional research was carried out by Oscar, Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance was looked after by Catherine and Trudy. 
post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are the work of Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.